0: Pot, grass, shake, bud. bud, ganja,
1: chronic, cannabis, cannabis. Whatever term you use, less than ten years ago, it was a product that was trafficked in the shadows. Hey buddy, hey, hey buddy, psst, psst, hey buddy. And today, in Oregon and many other states in the U.S., you get a receipt and a bag with your purchase. Thank you. Come again. I'm Travis Box, and I am. Fascinated by the complexities of what seems like a voter approved gold rush happening in real time. Will we cultivate Oregon's greatest cash crop ever? Or will this great experiment in legalization go up in smoke? <coughs> Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry, the activists, the medical professionals, the legislators, the economists, the regulators, and the lobbyists. How did Oregon get to this place in history? And where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? You see what I did there? You're listening to Mainstream Weedia on The Coin Podcast Network. Right now, there are many things the cannabis industry in Oregon struggles with. Regulatory issues, high taxes, and oversupply make it a tough way to make a living. But a darker struggle is the epidemic of robberies, many of them by armed assailants. The frequency of these robberies and the violent nature of many of them have not only the industry sounding the alarm for help, but even the OLCC. Early this year, they formally called on state and federal lawmakers to take action. Today, we'll speak with Paul Padriera, owner of Portland's Best Buds, a dispensary that was violently robbed at gunpoint. We'll talk about the experience, how his employees are doing now, and what needs to change.
0: You're listening to Mainstream Media.
1: Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. It's our award-winning newscast one hour earlier at 10 o'clock. A full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family from the news team that's watching out for you. Plus, Portland's most accurate forecast certified by weather rate from Chief Meteorologist Natasha Stenbach. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Watching out for you.
0: Welcome back to Mainstream Media.
1: Before we discuss the robbery, Paul, what led you to the cannabis industry? I came here
0: in 2011. I came from TV and film. I worked as an assistant director and towards the end of the series that I was working on, Grimm, I didn't want to continue. I've had a couple of hip surgeries and I was put on pain medicine. And during that time, I transitioned off of pain pills with cannabis. So two things happened. One, I didn't want to go back to L.A. and continue working 15, uh, you know, it was sort of the end of my career, physically speaking. So that's when I decided to open up in around 2015, a medical cannabis dispensary in St. John's because I had such a positive experience getting off of pain medicine and wanted to find something new to do after 28, 30 years in film seemed like the perfect match.
1: Tell me the story of Portland's best buds. It starts as a medicinal dispensary and then you transition to full recreational dispensary. But based on your website, it still looks like your primary focus is to help people with ailments. Your website has a very compassionate tone to it. So how did Best Buds start and how have you grown since 2015?
0: So your description is right. I mean, we really do emphasize, I mean, cannabis is a plant and I'm very, I'm an advocate of all kinds of plant medicine. We could get into the other stuff another time, but cannabis is is a medicinal plant. And most people, even recreationally, whether they know it or not, are medicating themselves for something. And it's better to medicate with a plant than with a pill. Uh, I, I feel very strongly that this is why cannabis is being so mistreated in our society because it is a huge threat to big pharma and it's a huge threat to money that law enforcement makes uh, making bullshit busts on people with cannabis. The, those are the two enemies of cannabis in the grand scheme of things. It's law enforcement and it's big pharma.
1: Okay. Now I want to talk about the robbery. And I know taking you back to this day is going to be tough. I saw the security video and it was heart wrenching to watch what your employees went through. But walk me through what happened. And this was this past July. Correct. Okay. Take me through the series of events.
0: Okay, so number one, I wasn't there. I was informed right after it happened by my employees and my managers. And what happened was three armed young individuals, African-American, two male, one female, all with guns, came in at about 9.30, 9.32. You know, we close at 10. Every shop has to close by 10. Per OLCC loss, so we were. You know, it's just the last half hour can usually be. It's dark, and it's usually. Well, sometimes it's busy, but usually it's slow. At this point, it was slow. Somebody had just a customer just left. These three individuals came in, brandishing. Each one of them, three of them, came in with guns. We we have a policy. Every store has a policy. We don't fight back. We don't fight back yet. And so we are, our butt tenders are trained to just give them whatever they want. It's just money. It's just product. We can replace all that. We have insurance. It's OK. But well, we can't replace people. So they complied. But these two, the two males, proceeded to brutally beat up the, the butt tender that was in the front as they were gathering product and cash that he gave to them, they proceeded to brutally beat him up, pistol whip him repeatedly. And then they dragged him to the door that leads to the back and put a, put a gun to, literally put a gun to his head and he couldn't open it fast enough. So they pistol whipped him again. And then they stepped back, this is all on video, and they gave, they gave him a standing count, like 10, 9, 8, or we're going to blow your head off. He got the door open. They went in, as they walk in towards the back, my other employee was just coming out of the bathroom and startled them. They yelled at him to get on the ground and I guess he didn't get on the ground fast enough and that's when they fired their weapon right over his head. And that bullet hole is six inches from where, he was, where his head was, okay? I've stood next to it, I've seen the video, they shot, they missed him by six inches. So that changes everything in terms of, I mean, if they just came in and robbed us, it just would have been another robbery. These kids were out of control. And then they went to the back. They got stuff out of the safe. We don't keep money there We're not. it's minimal. They did take some cannabis and then they ran out. The whole event took just under three minutes.
1: At this point, they call 911 and then they call you?
0: They call 911. They call me. They call my managers. They call me. The police arrived within 10 minutes. They were very, they saw the video. They, we took them through it. They were very professional. They seemed new. They seemed a bit new. They, in fact, one of them said, we don't, literally, word for word, she said, we, we don't prevent crime. We just clean up after. And I, I was pretty appalled by that. But it wasn't, it, she was just saying that as a matter of fact. You know, because they can't magically prevent a crime from happening. But when she said cleanup, I'm I'm thinking, is it so rampant that they're literally there just to like clean up bodies or clean up a mess? I don't I have no idea. And so it's very difficult to speak about this event in my shop and not talk about the greater problem in, in Portland with gun crime. So they went through their investigation. The girl, the female criminal left sunglasses so they said they were going to try to run dna on that we haven't they haven't been in touch with us since the crime and i feel like it's in a file on someone's desk and we now this is where it gets a little strange so they did a very thorough investigation they looked at the bullet hole they found the shell casing somebody else the next day found a clip an empty clip around the corner where they ran from or where they ran to after the crime and that was basically the last contact that we had with the Portland police. And I don't expect to have any further contact with them about this, because right now they're dealing with like people getting killed in the streets.
1: After living through that night, how are your employees now?
0: So we offered them time off, extended paid time off, and they both declined. They wanted to get right back to work. One of them has since left for other reasons, and the other one has remained. And he, he's great. He's been there for years and uh, he, he's OK. I mean, people process trauma in, in very different and mysterious ways. And sometimes trauma doesn't get processed until long after the traumatic event occurs. I, I just hope and pray that he's processed it and he's OK. But he he really is solid and he, he's a great, great guy, great employee. Love him to death.
1: Did this event force you to change how you conduct business?
0: Yes, we we now have a security guard at night out front. As far as the process in the shop, we had a pretty, we have already before this have, and all shops do that are compliant, checking IDs and, and all that. Uh, we're considering putting another door in with a buzzer and buzz everybody in. But you know, every layer of Security that we put in costs money, it makes it inconvenient to the to the greater public. It's devastating to a business, but we have to do what we have to do to keep safe.
1: So what makes you and other dispensaries such targets right now? I mean, you're not alone in your story, sadly. It's becoming tragically common in portland so what makes cannabis dispensaries such ripe targets for this type of criminal activity well
0: as you know we don't because the federal government considers this a schedule one drug which is the most we can get into that later it's a joke we don't meet any of the schedule one criteria but because it is a schedule one drug the most dangerous drug on the planet according to the united states federal government we can't bank now, I do have a bank, MAPS Credit Union, they they do, the states have figured out ways, but it's still, uh, we can't use credit, we can't receive credit cards, people still use ATMs, there are debit card workarounds, but the basic thing is when the customer pays at the point of sale, they're paying in cash.
1: So you have the combination of a cash-only business and obviously a product that can be sold on the black market, whether it's here or across state lines, it's a valuable product. Paul, in your experience, what needs to change?
0: Well, first and foremost, the federal government has to concede that this is every state's going to make this legal. The feds have to get off their asses and legalize this and and just tax it, just put a federal tax on it. If if the feds just want their money, there is a social aspect of it, I think, for Republicans that still think. Cannabis is a gateway drug, even though all the data says it's a reverse gateway drug It actually helps people get off of other more dangerous drugs, including mostly pharmaceuticals that are prescribed by doctors, but also other illegal drugs. People, uh, cannabis is a very, uh, it's a very unique plant. It gets people off worse drugs. So until the feds legalize, we're going to have these problems.
1: When it comes to federal reform, I know that there are two bills, one in the House and one in the Senate. In fact, Ron Wyden is the co-sponsor for the Senate bill, and Earl Blumenauer has been an advocate in the House for this for decades. Both of these bills are overarching umbrella, full-spectrum federal reform, and the likelihood of those getting through anytime soon are slim at best. If the government were able to right now pass safe banking, is that what would help the most for you right now?
0: Uh, if that would allow us to, we already have banking in Oregon,
1: but. If it were to allow you to use credit and debit cards like a normal business?
0: Absolutely. If we could conduct business like any other business with credit cards primarily, we would not be such a target. People would still. Probably want to rob for the cannabis, and they didn't get they did get cannabis. they didn't get a tremendous amount of cash because we have very strict protocols with the, the amount of cash that we have in the till and the amount of cash that we even have at that shop. but it would help it would help the perception is that we're just rolling in cash. It's just not not right. but if we had credit cards, it would probably and we were treated like any other business then criminals would probably not see us as such an easy target.
1: Do you feel either at the local, the state or the federal level that your needs and the needs of the cannabis industry specific to these violent robberies, do you feel your voices are being heard at all? Absolutely not. Not at all. How do you advocate for yourself in the industry? Do you advocate through the Oregon Cannabis Association uh, the Portland Bureau of Community and Civic Life's Cannabis Program. Are there people that you're trying to get through to and it's just falling on deaf ears?
0: I'm not a member of ORCA, but I, I have heard that they're a great organization. Until they start addressing 280E and federal laws, I'm not really interested. Per, that's just me personally. The other government organizations. I was very, very involved in and almost an activist way in getting meetings with commissioners back in 2015 and 16. I mean, I'll try to keep a long story short, but the city of Portland, I had a building that I purchased that got approved by all the agencies and six months in, because it was a, uh, at the time, Portland has all kinds of commercial properties in residential neighborhoods, they overlap. It's a crazy thing in Portland. And the building that I bought did overlap into a residential zoning. At the time, there was no language pro or against that. And all it took was a couple of neighbors complaining and the city said, we're going to take your license away. And I said, no, you're not. We'll go to court. We have due process in this country. And as soon as I hired a law firm They backed down, but I had to sell that building and move to my current location. And they put a lot of people that couldn't afford to hire a law firm. You have to do all your build outs and everything first, importantly, and then they decide whether to give you a license or not. And at the end of the day, they put hundreds of small businesses out of business during the transition from medical to recreational. They just rolled over these people like it was nothing. So I had a couple of meetings with Commissioner Fritz, tried to explain to her about how harsh Bureau of Development Services was and how differently they approached cannabis owners versus other businesses. It's like a completely different set of rules. She just didn't get it. They just don't get it.
1: Do you think that's changed at all in the past seven or eight years? Are they starting to understand?
0: No, all they wanted is the tax money. That's all they want is the tax revenue. And that's the other thing. We're now pouring at the city level. OK, it's, it's not as high a tax rate for the city. But at the state level, we are pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into this state. And nobody knows, pardon my French, nobody knows where the f- that money goes. It has to go through OLCC first. So if you want to you know, find out where the money is, ask the OLCC where it is. Because uh, by law, we have you know a certain percentage goes to schools, a certain percentage goes to rehab, a certain percentage goes to police. But the untold story is that OLCC gets to take whatever money they see fit to, for their programs first. And that's not in the law. And that's probably one of the most corrupt things going on in the state of Oregon is OLCC and how they handle the cash. But that's a, that's a whole other story. But no, I, I, I tried a few years ago. Now, I, I just don't. I, the, the one person who does respond, but he's handcuffed is Ted Wheeler. Ted Wheeler, when I when I try to ask for help, Ted Wheeler will get back to me right away. It's like that. that's the way all government should be getting back to us when we have issues. But Ted Wheeler can't do anything with the police, with the current commissioners that we have. Long story short, I was involved. I was trying to explain our plight to city commissioners back in the day. Now, Fritz has since retired. But no, they, they do not get it. And they're only look government. I think you have to realize government's only purpose is to get more money and more power. That's their only purpose.
1: You had alluded in our earlier conversation that if the government's not going to change the laws or they're not going to protect the dispensaries that you're at the point where you have to start protecting yourselves. Your new security guard, is he armed?
0: I'd rather not say, but, but I will say this. Sooner than later, these criminals are going to find out the hard way that it's not a good idea to rob a cannabis shop.
1: What do you want the audience to understand about this crisis? And how would you like them to advocate for you and the other dispensaries that have either gone through this or are going to be the next targets?
0: I don't know what your audience, who they are, but I will say that the community in St. John's, they all know what happened and they've been super supportive and understanding and they know the risks that we have. I would just say in general, though, that people that are not close to the cannabis industry should know that there's a tremendous amount of pressure that we're under to uh, meet all of the governmental demands and taxes and regulations. And most of us, the vast, vast majority of us are compliant. We're not treated that way. We're still treated like criminals by the local, state, and federal officials. But the vast majority of us, we came from other industries, we're entrepreneurs, we believe in our communities, we wanna be a part of our communities, And we're just like, you know, besides the big chains, we're all mom and pop shops. There aren't many of those left. I I am still one of those. But, uh, you know, we're getting we're slowly getting gobbled up. Everybody knew this was going to happen. The whole game is set up for this to be for us to be bought out by larger entities. That's just the way the nature of capitalism and is the nature of how cannabis was set up.
1: If you could change anything right now at the state regulatory level because we've already talked about the feds. What would you want differently here in the state of Oregon?
0: One of the strange things that Portland does is it just, they just charge us really high regulatory fees. But the rules that they do, they just cut and paste OLCC rules that are already, you know, they just mimic the state laws and they say, now these are our laws. And it's just, a, it's just purely a money grab. So I, I would say lessen the load, the burden. And I'm not even saying, like, we don't mind paying taxes if we saw it go, you know, going to the community. That, that's why we're doing this. But the regulatory fees and, and the regulations, they do, they just, OLCC is a law enforcer. That's all they are. That's all they're there for 100 years after prohibition. I would say they they need to just... We spend a lot of time and money just trying to follow their bizarre rules and regulations. I think that if they met us in the middle and we just had common sense regulations that would help shop owners immensely, but I I don't think like, I mean, they don't think like that. They don't want to meet us in the middle. They want to tell us what to do and they want to take our money. I mean, that's just the way OLCC is. And that's the way the Oregon Department of Revenue is. and That's the way the city of Portland is. And that's what has to change. In general, I mean, if I could just get outside of cannabis for a minute, I've talked to Ted Wheeler about this. He agrees that this city is so really harsh on business owners, yet look at the rampant crime. It's it's backwards. They should be working with business owners and they should be helping the police and give the police whatever resources they need to To have more of a presence right now, I mean, look around. There's just no police presence.
1: Paul, if people want to visit your dispensary or learn more about Portland's best buds, where do you want to send them?
0: We're located at 6313 North Lombard Street, right across from New Seasons on Lombard in North Portland. We have a absolutely incredible staff despite that traumatic event. And hopefully that's the last. We we really do have a friendly staff and we're in a great location. We're always happy to take on new new clients and new customers.
1: Paul, thank you so much for joining me and telling your story. I hope that something is done soon to address this.
0: Sounds good to me. And I really appreciate you. And I, I want to thank you because you and your organization seem to be the only ones that I'm aware of that are trying to get the word out that this crime situation in Portland is Absolutely. It's an emergency. It's out of control. It has to be
1: stopped now. That's Paul Padrera, owner of Portland's Best Buds in North Portland.
0: Mainstream media.
1: The combination of a product that can be turned for a profit easily on the black market and an industry being forced to use cash only has put this dangerous target on these businesses in our communities. There are strategies that could help. Passage of the Safe Banking Act at the federal level is one of those actions. But until that step is taken by our lawmakers, this violent trend will continue to plague dispensaries around the state, causing immense trauma and costing both money and possibly lives. Thank you for listening to Mainstream Media on the Coin Podcast Network.